I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I'm your host, Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome, and thank you for joining us once again. Oh, so good to be with you, Mike, Mary. Glad to be here. Archbishop, I know it's been obviously very historic, crazy kind of times the last number of months. How, how have you been doing yourself this last uh, month with, uh, with COVID and with having to, uh, you know, obviously isolate yourself? How, how have you been doing personally? Like everybody else, I think, Mike, uh, you know, I feel this is a great trial. It's an opportunity for me to have more uh, trust in the Lord. Uh, I believe very much that these are days he wants us to have. Uh, he can bring good out of them. Uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, consolations as well during this time, uh, especially as I uh, become aware of what the priests are doing in order to be creative and advance their priestly ministry. A uh, couple of things. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, as as a father or shepherd, you are you feeling very proud of your priests right now for the oh, ingenuity proud. that they're doing? Yeah, way proud. Uh, getting reports, especially about the fruit that's being borne by uh, the creativity of the priests in uh, hearing confessions, finding ways mm. to be more available to hear confessions in ways that are uh, that are safe, observe social distance, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. That's awesome. That's wonderful. How, how have you, um, I know this last month we obviously celebrated uh, Easter, and are, are there any particular ways that you kind of celebrated Easter with joy in this unique kind of time and season? One of my great joys was uh, the celebration of uh, the second Sunday of Easter, uh, Divine Mercy Sunday, uh, and uh, after Mass was concluded to carry the Blessed Sacrament out to the porch of uh, the cathedral and offer a blessing to uh, the city and to our whole archdiocese. That, for me, was very, very meaningful. Oh, that was a pretty wonderful. profound moment to, to watch um, as it was being kind of streamed uh, to look at. Are you getting more comfortable with doing Masses at the cathedral kind of solo? Is, that, is it coming more naturally? Is it still quite uncomfortable? What is it like? I wouldn't say it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's gotten into a bit of a routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel really blessed to be able to be connected that way. Uh, whatever is the peculiarity of it uh, is far outweighed by the uh, the blessing of being able to be in touch with so many people. And I'm getting a lot of feedback that uh, offers thanks and expresses gratitude. And if if it helps people, then I'm that that warms my heart as a priest. That's my job as a priest is to help people get close to Christ. It's so nice to feel kind of connected during this oh, time. Oh, yeah. And speaking of that, this week you put out a letter to the faithful, and I thought it was so well done because um, it acknowledged this longing for the Eucharist that we're feeling. Um, do you want to share anything about that, why you decided to put that letter out, um, what your thinking was behind it? Well, it seemed like the right time. We've uh, been in the stay-at-home, stay-safe mode for a, a significant amount of time. I am getting uh, letters from people saying, please, Bishop, consider how soon we can gather together. Uh, I wanted to acknowledge that that's a a very understandable and solid kind of uh, feeling. And I want to assure people that uh, we're not just on automatic pilot, but in fact, uh, several times a week, uh, I and uh, those of us in leadership review the situation, and uh, we're monitoring this very closely. And as soon as we think it's prudent, we'll begin some sort of return on the path to normalcy. But uh, we're going to have to do it in a way that makes sense, uh, right. That that that's prudent. And I know prudence can sound like a kind of fussy Victorian word, but mm-hmm. prudence just means uh, good common practical sense. Uh, You know, uh, it's the kind of uh, judgment moms have when they uh, tell their uh, 12-year-old that uh, it's going to be 20 degrees and you do need to wear your coat today. (laughs) That's prudence. 
That's a good way to kind of bridge that gap of understanding. And I know there's like an expression of, you know, feeling seen. And when I read that letter as, as a member of the faithful, it was good for me to hear the acknowledgement of this longing that we're feeling because, you know, at first it's kind of a novelty to watch live stream masses, you know, and you're like, oh, we're kind of all in this together. But as time goes on, it's, it's almost painful because, you know, we're Eucharistic people and <laughs> we gather together in community and we share in the sacrifice and it's, it's hard to watch it on TV week after week, you know? Yeah. No, there was a really fine article that uh, I saw in the latest issue of the Na National Catholic Register by uh, our own professor, Dr. Healy, Mary Healy, mm -hmm. teaches here at Sacred Heart. And mm -hmm. she offered some reflections based on sacred scripture about what God's doing and how his providence is at work in this time. And she said that perhaps one of the things we can take away from this experience is to examine our consciences and see if we've taken the Holy Eucharist for granted. Uh, how often do people say, well, I could do this or I could do that, and maybe presuming that the Mass is always going to be there as one more choice. and. If that's what God's doing, and, and I don't know, uh, God's ways in history are mysterious, but if that's the grace he's offering, and it very well may be that he's offering that grace, then that there's where the blessing lies, to appreciate that uh, we, we do so long to ha have the Eucharist, which is a longing for our beloved. And uh, in our history, uh, people have died in order to be able to get to the Holy Eucharist. I think yeah. of the great tradition of the mass stones in uh, penal Ireland, people gathering in the dead of night or the, uh, uh, the priest holes in, in England. If, mm. And so if, as you say, Mary, if from all of this we are deepened in our appreciation, then that's a good fruit that's coming from an evil thing. You're so right. You had said in a previous podcast that, and it really hit me, that we almost sometimes, some of us, me in the front of the line, will go to worship on a Sunday and almost expect congratulations. You know, I made it here with all my kids, so yay for me. And I think I myself had kind of fallen into a little bit of that trap, especially having young children. And I found myself on Sunday watching the live stream Children's Mass, like you said, just weeping for the senses of being at mass, for the feel of the pew and kneeling down and, and the smell of the candles, all of the, the things that we experience, as well, of course, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But like you said, I, I'm not sure in the recent, in the near future, I will take the Eucharist for granted again, like I have in my life. It's very easy to when it's always there at whatever time is convenient for me, you know? So that, I think I, that that'll be a fruit in my own life. I do, Mary, and it's not just about uh, you and the lay faithful. I think it's true for me and mm. not unlikely for a lot of us priests <clears throat> to mm. be living through this uh, on our way to a new, a renewed appreciation of, mm. what it, uh, of the privilege it is to, to minister to God's people. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you so much for the letter. It, it helped, I think, to to have us feel connected in this really tough time and any and your live streams and all the communication that you're doing and like you said so many priests are doing it helps to keep us feeling very strongly part of our faithful community so that's important archbishop i know many of our schools um and our teachers in our Catholic schools have done just done a wonderful job turning on a dime and really quickly making adjustments to how they teach. And I know that by the end of this month, many of them are coming to a close for their remote learning for the year. Did you have any particular message for the students and for the teachers, uh, especially maybe even the seniors that are graduating at this time, uh, again, with these weird, weird circumstances? Well, for the, the whole school community, the teachers and the students, uh, a word of gratitude for everybody's uh, uh, flexibility and investment in continuing the, the mission of our Catholic schools, even during uh, the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, we say uh, very strongly that our schools have a mission, they're an apostolate, and the sacrifices that the teachers especially and the leaders, the principals have made, but the students and the parents uh, as well, uh, to continue doing mission, 
that's uh, one way to think about it. And I, I give God praise and thanks for people's fidelity to the mission of Catholic schools. And about seniors, um, uh, this is perhaps a, a call to be ready to be prepared. Uh, they have uh, completed their course of study. They're moving on, uh, some of them to trades, some to the military, some to higher education. Uh, this is a time of, of great testing, uh, and uh, we've done our very best as a community in our schools to help them get ready for that. And they can be confident in building on this foundation, which is academically sound, but also humanly, spiritually sound as a formation to be able to move forward with faith in, in hope. Have you thought, Archbishop, about some of these milestones that were uh, missing during this time of stay at home? You know, there's the graduations, even the priestly ordinations. One of my priest friends brought up, they're going to look different, these men that have been preparing for years. Um, how do we kind of find comfort in some of those big moments looking so different this year? Hmm. Well, the first place I start, Mary, and, and I said this a little earlier, is that uh, as much as I would like them to be different, uh, this is the way God wants to give them to me right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if I cooperate with him, if I, uh, and, and I can only do this by the power of his spirit to accept his uh, decree about how I'm going to, for example, uh, ordain these men this year. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can do that, it, he, and he will give me the strength to do that, then uh, it will be, there'll, there'll be something better. This is a, a theme, I think, even in St. Thomas Aquinas, if I recall my reading accurately, that God permits evil so that he can bring something better if we are willing to cooperate with his, his providential plan. That is but a it's good sad. Comfort. It's very difficult. One of the things I think is very difficult, uh, uh, and it's not an annual marking, but is uh, people not being able to have funerals. Right. big funerals. I mean, we can have very small sorts of uh, opportunities for burials, for f and the, we have norms for that, and the priests uh, apply them, I think, very, uh, very prudently. But uh, uh, not to be able to have a, a, a regular funeral for people we, we mourn and, and miss, uh, I think that's very difficult. I think you're right. Yeah. But it's good to kind of rem remind ourselves that God is in control. So I appreciate that reminder, that it's not a chaotic situation, that our faith grounds us uh, with the working of the Spirit. Well, and uh, reminds me of something my mother used to say uh, in her own, I think, very plain-spoken witness uh, as a disciple. Uh, something bad would happen, and she'd say, I don't know how people who don't have faith can get along. Uh, and we do uh -huh. it. It's faith that is the light to help us yeah. move forward. Yep. Very good. Well, Archbishop, this is the uh, the month of May. Uh, I know it's a very special month for both Mary and I because we both celebrate birthdays in this month. But it's uh, oh, happy birthday! <laughs> Forty years old, Archbishop Vigneron. Forty years old for Mike and I. <laughs> both of us. Yeah, yeah. But oh, uh, you're young. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But it's obviously more important of a month because we uh, always celebrate it in the church as the month of Mary. And so I know today we wanted to maybe talk about a little bit about uh, that as a Marian month, but also its cross-section, obviously, with this time of the pandemic and everything we're going through and everything. So if you wouldn't mind, Archbishop, would you tell us a little bit about where that kind of emerged as May uh, being kind of the month of Mary and dedicated to Mary and the celebration of that? Well, Mike, you gave me a little heads up that I might have a question like this, and I did some research and uh, what I found is nobody really knows for sure how far back the dedication of May to Mary uh, goes. But that what we do know is it started as just an instinct among the faithful. And over time, uh, the pastors of the church, including our Holy Fathers, the popes, have, uh, have blessed this instinct and, and built on it. Very good. Yeah, so so it has come, it, it, I guess the simplest, it seems like it, the Holy Spirit did it in the rank and file of the church. Yeah, look that. at that. I love that. 
What are some special ways that you honor Mary during this month personally? Like, are there things that you do differently in the month of May to keep your focus on, you know, Our Lady and, and the role that she is in our lives? One of the things that's very important for me is uh, to uh, keep the Saturdays of the, uh, of the month as especially dedicated to Our Lady. This is also a custom in the life of the church. And there's uh, promulgated by St. John Paul II a, a set of really rich mass prayers. And so in May, I try to be attentive to that in particular to uh, keep my, my uh, Saturdays dedicated to Our Lady. Nice. Growing up, did you have any traditions during the month of May within your family or within your school life? Well, uh, one of the most important things I learned from the sisters in school was I needed to have a May altar. And mm. uh, so mm. I had a little statue of Our Lady. And uh, with my mom's permission, I could cut a couple of flowers out of the garden and put them on my, uh, my May altar. That's oh, what that's I think awesome. about right now. You talk about the mission of Catholic school teachers, and one of the challenges my son had that I didn't realize he was working independently was to make a little May altar. So I looked in the corner of his bed. He had made construction paper flowers and put his rosary on top of that. And I thought that was such a neat little reminder for him that May is a little different and to be mindful of the Blessed Mother during this month. And he made crownings when you were growing up. Was that part of your schooling? It was uh, part of our uh, uh experience in the parish. Uh, my young youngest brother told me a story the other day. Uh, uh, we sang uh, on Sunday at the end of the uh, live stream mass, uh, Immaculate Mary. There was a, a May crowning in the cathedral. Father Mech and I performed that rite. And uh, he said it took him back to his childhood and hearing uh, remember hearing my mom sing uh, the Lord's hymn during the May crowning uh, at the parish. And I thought that was, a, it, it made it real for me. That's very sweet. One of my girlfriends was singing to her son uh, one of the Marian hymns. And I think many of us that grew up Catholic can remember our moms singing those hymns. And I hope my kids remember that too when they grow up, you know. That's good. Wonderful. I know this... Um it's obviously, uh, especially with Month of Mary, we think of Mary very much as an intercessor for us. She's always uh, working on our behalf. And so would you mind talking to that for a moment, Archbishop? Like, what does, let's taking it back to basics, what does intercession really mean? Um, and, and why do we believe this, you know, from, a, from our saints that all intercede, but Mary, of course, as the, uh, the best intercessor, if you will? Yeah, uh, let's start with just intercession as such. Uh, we can pray uh, for one another. It, it, it's throughout the New Testament. It's not any one particular place that uh, speaks of that. Uh, and if uh, in, uh, uh, when uh, Christians are still alive on this earth, we can pray for one another and support one another, then certainly uh, we can have that uh, supportive prayer from those who have already gone to God and we are sure stand in front of his throne. I was uh, reading a commentary on the book of Revelation just last night and the uh, author points out that throughout the book of Revelation it's very clear that those who stand before the throne of God in heaven are interceding and uh, have an impact on the unfolding of God's plan for salvation. About Our Lady, Perhaps the two most important uh, witnesses to that are, first of all, uh, the fact that Jesus gave her to us uh, when he was dying on the cross. She's our mother, and he asked us uh, to take her, to behold her, to accept her. And it's out of that confidence that we come to her. And the, another very important witness is uh, her intercession at the wedding feast of Canaan. That uh, she presents the need of the bride and groom to Jesus and uh, is confident that he will, uh, he will respond in his own wisdom. I think we all, it, it's something that, uh, I mean, we've got good doctrinal grounds for it, but I think it's also... Uh, confirmed for us just by our own uh, solid 
Catholic sentiments. Mm. Mm. So when you you think of your own life, and obviously it's become very clear to me meeting for these podcasts that you have quite a devotion to Our Lady, specifically Our Lady of Lords. But is there a time in your life where you've really leaned on the intercession of Mary and and felt particularly close to her through 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 an experience or through a trial or anything like that? Well, I'm like any kid, you know, you uh, can take your mom for granted until you need her and then you right. you kind of <laughs> run into the house. Yes. Um, so I particularly, I suppose, uh, am attentive to Our Lady's help uh, when I'm in a time of stress and challenge. Uh, when the Holy Father sent me to California, to Oakland, to be the bishop, uh, that was a challenge. I didn't know anybody there. Uh, uh, had to uh, uh, really pick up my whole life and move. And uh, I would say that in those months especially of getting accustomed to uh, a new diocese, uh, a new state, uh, I relied greatly on uh, the protection of Our Lady and a sense that I could uh, move forward confidently under her protection. Mike, have you ever had an experience where you've really leaned on the Blessed Mother for intercession or for prayer and felt strengthened by it or comforted by it? I mean, the the time that comes most immediately to mind is, um, so uh, my wife and I, we've unfortunately struggled in our marriage with, with infertility issues and things like that. And we did, we did, we were able to conceive and uh, my wife is pregnant uh, seven years ago, but unfortunately at 32 weeks we had, um, we had a stillbirth, so we lost the child. And um, that image of the, of the Pieta and the suffering mother um, and, and mm. just asking for her prayer and her help and her, and her intercession for my wife and for myself during that time was particularly mm. helpful. And I, was, uh, I felt particularly drawn close to her at that time for sure. I love when we can think of Mary as like a mom, like a real, like you said, Archbishop Vigneron, you know, running into the house to her or being with her and her ability to suffer, you know, like she was really in it, you know. Mary, that's the, that's what's really important behind the title that one of the very first and most important titles the, the bishops of the church have solemnly given to Mary, Mother of God. And it's theologically correct, but what's also important about it is it stands as a, a marker to how real the incarnation is, mm -hmm. that Jesus isn't an idea. Uh, he, he is God come in the flesh. And so Mary isn't just an idea. Mm -hmm. Mary is a person. She, she's the mom. And so all of the things that are, are so uh, good about our humanity, our humanness, are brought up into our life in Christ. Uh, that's, it, it uh, well, I, can, I guess I just would wind up repeating myself, but <laughs> like a real, it, she, she's, she's not just like a real mom. Right. She is right. a real mom. Right. Yeah. Right. How about for you, Mary? Was there a particular time or moment for you that you leaned on Mary or had uh, knew of her power of intercession at a certain time? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, Mike, I'm struck by your story a little bit because I, I walked uh, through that with you guys. And I think that um, that was a pretty profound thing to walk through and, and, and know that you know, your your story, I think the Blessed Mother was very close to you guys in that time. So when I think of the Blessed Mother, I think about that as well. Um, and just little things. I, I Somebody taught me in college this, this power of the three Hail Marys. And so whenever I am in need of like immediate intercession <laughs> for silly things and big things, I really pray the three Hail Marys um, for her intercession and, and believe strongly that that, you know, in those moments, she has the ear of Jesus. <laughs> and so yeah. I can think of a million little times, even presenting sometimes when, you know, there's a tough crowd or I'm not sure what I'm doing in ministry and I'm not confident just asking her to kind of intercede and make it okay and, and things will be okay, you know. So I uh -huh. see her, her moving in my life in little ways as well. Mary, isn't it 
the case, though, that for a mother, I mean, you're the mom, I'm not, mm. but <laughs> I had one, she's gone yeah. to God, but yeah. my sense always was there wasn't little things for a mother. Right. If that's important to, to the child, it's important to the mother. Yeah, I think that that, since having children, the role of the, the Blessed Mother has just become a totally different thing in my life. My husband, for Mother's Day, gave me this beautiful image of the Blessed Mother holding baby Jesus, and I can see it out um, out my bedroom door. So when it's the middle of the night and I'm I'm up with kids, um, a friend got me in an even in a, a larger version of this same picture that I love, and I don't know what it's called. I wish I did, but uh, my kids are up in the middle of the night and I'm tired and I want to go to bed, and I see this this picture, and it brings me a different level of kind of comfort um, of Our Lady, you know, in in who I am as a mother. So. It's important, I think, like you said, Archbishop, to to remember she isn't like a mother. She is a mother in all the ups and downs that come with being a mom. It's been important in who I am as a mom to relate to her that way. So mm. that's good. No, and I like your point. I mean, she's not an archetype. She's not right, just a mythological figure of motherhood. She was an actual mother. And I think that's that's great to remember um, and that's become more profound for me since being a mom like even yeah. the little things like I'm saying up in the middle of the night like right. she was probably up in the middle of the night sometimes with Jesus and tired mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so uh, being able to relate to her in that way has been a real gift yeah well Archbishop I know obviously with the month of Mary and uh, this pandemic obviously uh, that we're seeing I know different um, different leaders around the world have been doing um, re-consecrations or first-time consecrations uh, of their countries or as individuals to our Blessed Mother. I know um, many of us, I know myself included, did a St. Louis de Montfort kind of personal consecration uh, shortly after getting married. My wife and I both did that. Mary, I believe you've probably done that as well, right? The consecration. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you speak a little bit, Archbishop, to what the idea is of of consecrating either yourself as an individual or consecrating even like a a country uh, over to the hands of Mary and and kind of where that came from? I think uh, to, to understand it, we need to begin with baptism that in baptism we are consecrated uh, to God the Father in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We enter the covenant. uh, And in a covenant, it's not just that stuff gets exchanged. It's not like a contract. Uh, You give me the sweatshirt, I give you my money. In a covenant, people give themselves to one another, a total gift of self. That's why marriage is, is a covenant. It's the most prominent natural covenant we know of. And so my understanding of these particular consecrations are that there's specifications of this baptism covenant that uh, there's an aspect of belonging to the church, uh, belonging to God in the church, that uh, we then freely highlight. And uh, by the movement of the Holy Spirit, we're uh, drawn to uh, specify uh, this baptism relationship in a very particular way. And I think uh, with our the Blessed Mother, uh, because we're Christians, because we're disciples of Jesus, we do belong to Mary and she belongs to us. But like any good relationship, that needs to be articulated, it needs to be specified, uh, needs to be highlighted. And uh, so, uh, for example, in Mexico, uh, this belonging to Mary is highlighted under her title of Our Lady of Guadalupe. In the United States, uh, the bishops of our country, all the way back to 1792, when there was one bishop for the United States, uh, John Carroll, uh, Our Lady, under the title of her Immaculate Conception, has been the way we specify our belonging to her. And uh, because Jesus is the Lord of all times and all peoples, it's possible to put the, uh, to direct the United States as a nation, particularly into the care of our Blessed Mother as uh, the Immaculate. And then when we do something like a consecration, and what do we what do we hope will happen as a result? Because I think sometimes it can be tricky with intercession. You know, if we um, if we pray fervently enough or with enough hope, 
the pandemic will end, you know, which isn't necessarily how God is going to uh, play out his will. And so what is our hope when we as a country decide we're going to consecrate ourselves, especially during a time like this? Well, I think we are uh, quite, uh, it's quite legitimate to hope that God will will intervene and act powerfully to put an mm. end to the plague. He mm. has done that in times past, mm. but uh, we have to wait on his goodwill and confident that if it doesn't turn out that way, that that's better for us because right. God will never let something happen that is not ultimately for our happiness. Mm. I mean, we know this by faith that... Right. Our happiness is more important to God than it is to us. And so if he answers our prayers in, a, in a, another way than what we uh, uh, have been pleading for, then uh, we're confident that uh, that's for our good. You keep going back to that, and it's, it's such a good faith reminder that the better is coming, and we trust and we have faith that God is moving. And not only is coming, is here. He's here in this right now. Um, and with our ladies' intercession, hopefully his, his will be shown, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit later uh, soon about Our Lady of Lourdes. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's very remarkable is that uh, when St. Bernadette was uh, moving to the end of her life, with her uh, final illness, uh, they said, well, you should, people said to her, you should go back to the grotto. She said, that's not for me. Uh, that's not what Our Lady wants for me. Mm. And I think that's, uh, uh, to me, a moving example of this abandonment to God's plan. You, uh, you just sort of alluded to it, Archbishop, but uh, I know during the first live stream Mass uh, on March 15th, you you spoke in an emotional moment about entrusting the Archdiocese to our Blessed Mother and announcing also that a, a grotto of Our Lady of Lords on the grounds of the cathedral will be built. Um, what's your vision for that grotto, and is there anything more on that specifically that you'd like to share? My vision for it is uh, that it will stand as a reminder to all of us that our prayers were answered for Our Lady's intercession in uh, these months. And we can promise to do it already because we can be sure she, that she uh, is interceding for us. Uh, I have no doubt. Now, I, I don't know what that, the fruit of her intercession will be, but I know that uh, she's hearing our pleas and, and praying for us and for our well-being. Um, I... When I think about every place Our Lady has appeared, she always comes as an evangelist, as a herald of the good news. That's what she did to Juan Diego. That's what she did to the three children in uh, Fatima. And that's what she did at Lourdes. And particularly her message, her good news there is that uh, Jesus is with us in our sickness and in our time of trial. And I think that's what a Lord's Grotto uh, uh, attests to. Uh, it echoes uh, Mary's message that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he will never, ever go away. I find this powerfully uh, uh, presented to me when I think about what the Lord's Grotto is. You know, this was a place where they threw garbage, and the pigs used to go there. Uh, mm. to wrote around and that's where Mary decided to uh, manifest her well that's where she was sent by Jesus and uh, she's in that that to me says that God is in our garbage mm -hmm. uh, he, he he's not afraid to be part of of our mess and uh, that's to me what the uh, Lord's grotto bespeaks God is with us that's a beautiful line. I love that. God is in our garbage. I mean, that's yeah, just, just very, <laughs> and it's very deep and very profound right there. Yeah. So thank you for that, Archbishop. Did you have, did you have Archbishop, the, the idea or the prayer movement or feel the spirit encouraging you to lead our diocese in creating this grotto prior to what's happened in 2020? And this just seemed like the moment to present it. What was kind of the process of, of making that decision for the diocese? <laughs> 
Uh, Father uh, Mac, the cathedral rector, and I have mm -hmm. talked about uh, putting a grotto up on the grounds of the cathedral, and it's been a kind of uh, wishful idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the pandemic hit, I uh, determined that now is the time to move forward. Uh, we're still in the initial planning stages. A few people have sent gifts uh, toward, uh, toward the project, and I'm very grateful for that. But we don't, uh, we're just beginning to talk about where it might be and, and what it might look like. It seemed like a really uh, spirit-heavy, I'll say, moment when you kind of announced that at that liturgy. Um, many people kind of, just on social media, I always reference that I see things on social media, talked about that moment and um, the passion by which you brought it up and kind of just a real moment of hope in, in some darkness. So I look forward to seeing how that comes to play in the archdiocese. I do too. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to do it, what, what the next steps are, but... Uh, God will, God will help us. I think so. That's cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about Our Lady in this podcast as we kind of move forward? Any reflections or thoughts that we can kind of have uh, during this month? I'm not sure that it, uh, uh, how edifying this will be. I mean, I'm not, uh, uh, not cheerleading so much, but I'm moved right now to pay tribute to my parents who had a very plain and uh, um, unvarnished confidence in Our Lady in uh, what were, you know, the typical kinds of uh, challenges that come to any married couple trying to raise six kids on a tight budget. And uh, I really learned a lot from my mom and dad about uh, just a, a plain uncomplicated uh, confidence in the Blessed Mother. Which is a really powerful witness, I think, especially in this, uh, I don't know, this time of noise. You know, there's just a lot of noise all around us that there's a simplicity that I think if we connect back to, it'll deepen our faith. And I, I love when you speak about your parents and the way that they raised you because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't always necessarily seem like real extra. It was just they lived their faith. And the fact that with the Blessed Mother, they lived her intercession is, is a beautiful thing for, I think, any families and, uh, and the lay faithful to, to, re to remind us of how we should live. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So at this time in the podcast, we ask uh, the lay faithful from the Archdiocese of Detroit to submit their questions, and they can submit those questions uh, to eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org, and we take those questions, Archbishop Vigneron, and we get to ask them, uh, ask you them. So what we'd like to do right now is, is go into the questions, but before I do that, I want to remind our listeners, anytime you feel that you might have a question that you'd like the Archbishop to answer, you can go ahead and email us at eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org. So your first question today, Archbishop Vigneron, is comes from James at St. Andrews in Rochester. And James says, how did David's sin affect his relationship with God in the Old Testament? I was uh, very grateful for this question because I've been thinking a lot about, uh, over the years, God's affection for King David and uh, why he made uh, an irrevocable covenant with David that... Uh, uh, it was from David's uh, stock that the Messiah would come. And, and God was faithful to that in spite of David's ma many sins. Um, that's going to be one of my questions uh, when uh, we have the last judgment, when David's name is read out and we look at his case. I'm going to ask God, what did you like so much? What, what, what made David so blessed to you? Uh, from my, my read of the sacred scripture, it has to do with David's uh, wholeheartedness, mm. that uh, he was all in, and uh, 
he obviously was not uh, uh, all holy. Uh, I mean, he, he sinned uh, with adultery. He arranged for uh, the murder of uh, Bathsheba's husband. But uh, God had pity on him and saw in him uh, something that uh, uh, was, was a, 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 a ground of grace. Obviously, David's sins wounded in that relationship with God, and yet God remained faithful to David. And David was able, on the basis of God's fidelity, to return and, and repent. Uh, so I think David represents uh, the mystery of uh, sin and repentance in the life of, uh, of every member of the covenant. I love your point, Archbishop, about kind of uh, David getting kind of that A for effort from God, like uh, just <laughs> the fact that he, uh, uh, that his passion that was there, and he was so all in, as you said. I, I really like that image. That's great. And it doesn't excuse him for his sins. Right, uh, right. Uh, but it well, it provided an, a basis for God to act in his life. And yeah. God is faithful. Uh, God is always looking for ways uh, to uh, open up the cracks of our heart. Uh, second question we have here for you is from Shelley of St. Hugo's of the Hills in Bloomfield Hills. And she asks, what advice would you have for Catholics trying to stay pro-life from womb to tomb and live out our faith in this diverse climate, especially when our beliefs uh, so often go misrepresented? The way to begin, I believe, is to have confidence in the resurrection of Christ, which is uh, the ultimate victory over evil. And uh, this is not to, in any way, uh, obscure the heinous crime of uh, abortion and how awful it is that uh, uh, this is uh, legitimated in our uh, uh, legal system. But Christ is risen. He will uh, ultimately uh, bring about victory and that he is able to bring good out of this evil uh, if we respond to his invitations about how we can uh, how we can do that, I find the history of the Christian people is uh, a consolation about all of this. As we look at times when uh, things seem so very dark and evil seem to be so triumphant, but in the end, uh, God has brought us forward, and He He will bring us through this. Um, I think. Uh, Yes, the climate is divisive. I think uh, St. Peter says in one of his uh, two epistles that uh, we have to go about doing, doing good and uh, being patient uh, and uh, let our good example speak, speak for us. When it comes to kind of uh, beliefs being misrepresented and just the difficulty sometimes of talking about these things in a way that is... Um, truthful and yet inviting towards truth. How do you kind of manage that as the archbishop and having such a, um, a voice that's listened to? Do you, do you really pray for prudence? How do you kind of maneuver through some of these, these harder well, issues to even talk about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I start, uh, you know, when it comes to this matter of being misrepresented, that our Lord promised that that would happen. He said, if, they, if this is what they say about me, don't be surprised when they, they misrepresent you. Mm -hmm. And if, if God the Son in the flesh could be called Beelzebul, well, mm. we, we shouldn't be surprised if sure. uh, we're mischaracterized. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think Christ is the example to return, uh, to uh, receive all of that with patience. Uh, and uh, so much so that uh, he, he died asking the Father to forgive the people who, uh, who misrepresented him, if mm -hmm. use a pretty weak word for what they mm -hmm. did. And uh, how to go about making our case? I think to do it with patience and with love. Uh, and uh, to, to be firm, certainly, mm -hmm. uh, to be unambiguous, uh, but at the same time to... Uh, to have uh, not just the cause, uh, 
in the front of our uh, mind when we make our case, but also to be mindful of the, uh, the, sal the need uh, for salvation uh, and God's love for the people who, uh, who uh, put, set themselves up against the truth. All helpful reminders. Karen from St. Stephen, our last question for today in New Boston, would like to ask, what can the Catholic Church and the faithful do to support our brothers and sisters who struggle with sexual sin, especially as we live in such a sexualized, secular culture? I think a really important place to begin in answering this question is to acknowledge that uh, we do live in this toxic milieu of uh, uh, a highly eroticized culture that seems to uh, say at every turn that erotic satisfaction is the uh, the ultimate happiness in life mm -hmm. and so this is not easy to uh, maintain chastity in this milieu uh, what can the church do well uh, for us as pastors, the most important thing is to continue to uh, hold up the gospel way of life along with uh, our Lord's promise that he will give us the strength we need to live this life of uh, heroic virtue and also the promise that he, forgiveness is available uh, when or if someone uh, falls. For the rank and file of the faithful, I think uh, it's really important for all of us to give encouragement each to the other, uh, to uh, call out the lie uh, about uh, the eroticized culture, uh, to support one another in our resolutions uh, to avoid the near occasions of sin. Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, seem to be legitimate in our forms of entertainment that in fact uh, provoke temptation. And uh, we need to support one another in, in the discipline of, of avoiding those uh, experiences that tend to inflame our passions and, and bring us to temptation. Um, so that's spiritual friendship is important. Uh, also to encourage one another in asceticism a very important way to avoid uh, uh, sins against chastity is to practice asceticism and other feelings, other what the theologians call passions in that generic sense, uh, uh, to practice asceticism about my comfort, uh, to practice asceticism about my appetite for food, uh, for luxuries, uh, for... Uh, things that make life easier. Uh, and, and we can do that for one another. One of the things I uh, keep in mind is the practice that St. Philip Neri used to do when he heard confessions. If uh, he thought a, sin, a sinner presented a, a sin that merited a, a very uh, powerful, a very vigorous penance, uh, St. Philip would impose the penance but then he'd say to the penitent, and I'll do that for you. I oh, will wow. do your penance. Uh, all you have to do is, I mean, you give him something simple like uh, three Hail Marys or some such thing. So we can do that for one another. Uh, we can uh, make up what's lacking in one another's spiritual life too. That's really beautiful. I had never heard that about St. Philip. What a uh, What a good witness in terms of leaning into one another for strength, you know? And I think some of that cr is, it necessitates honest conversations sometimes. And I think sometimes um, the evil uses keeping all of this in the dark so that we don't talk openly about some of the ways to counter it, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, the shadow, the dark is the, the great ally of the evil one. Mm. Uh, uh, light. The light of Christ is the great uh, uh, inoculation against the evil one. Which I always think is really profoundly shown in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. You know, when you go in and you feel um, 
you know, such darkness and shame and all of those things that sometimes lead to you to go to the sacrament of reconciliation and the feeling afterwards of, of bringing things to the light and hearing you're forgiven. You know, I think that's a key part too. That is one of the most important graces of the sacrament. Mm. Uh, I know that uh, some people don't understand <clears throat> why we have the mediation of the priestly ministry mm. in the sacrament, but there's a great freedom in being able to say before, out loud, in front of God, in, through his priest, mm. I am this, whatever the this is, and I know you love me. Mm. Uh, that I am this, and you can name the worst possible sin in, in that blank. Oh, wow. yeah. I am this, but I trust that God loves me and will forgive me. That is a powerful liberation from uh, the, uh, the chain of the devil. Because above all things, his lie to us is, you are unlovable. Well, Archbishop, before we ask for a close the episode with a blessing, I wanted to ask you if there was anything in particular that those listening, and of course Mary and myself, if there's anything specific we could pray for for you, any special intentions you have or anything specific uh, that you desire us to pray for you for. I think uh, particularly I'd ask everybody to join with me in praying for the our pastors, our priests, uh, as... Uh, they work so diligently to to be of service to God's people in, in these trying times. And also, <clears throat> in the next uh, few weeks, we're going to have the ordination of the seminarians uh, as deacons and the ordination of deacons to the priesthood. So uh, specifically when it comes to uh, those called to the priesthood, pray for these young men. You got it, Archbishop. Would you mind, Archbishop, closing us with a with a final prayer and blessing? Glad to do it. Let's. Uh, we've spoken so much about Our Lady. Uh, I, I don't know that we need to do three, like Mary <laughs> said, but we'll do the Hail Mary. <laughs> Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord, the Lord is, is with thee. thee. Blessed Bless art thou among women, women and, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, God pray, pray for, for us sinners. sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Lourdes, pray for us. Blessed Solanus, pray for us. And may Almighty God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Archbishop. You're welcome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mary. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like the Open Door Policy Podcast with Father Steve Pullis and Danielle Center, a podcast for joyful missionary disciples and our movement to unleash the gospel. Find it on your favorite podcast app.